0: You're listening to The Movement, a Holy Family School of Faith podcast. Before we get started in prayer, you have a little pop quiz. Um, On the sheet that says number two, there are two questions that are review questions. I want you to take a moment. You can use a partner. Try to do it without looking at the packet from last week if you can. First, do that first. And if you weren't here, find someone that was here and make them tell you the answers. You've got... Uh, two minutes to do this task. You can work together if you need to. Can you use your cell phone? Can't use your cell phone. You can't use the Google. All right, let's see. Uh, What what was one of the three ways we came to know things? Who remembers one of them? Yeah. Logic. Logic. Logic or reason. That was the first way. What's the second way? What's the second way? Or one of the one of the two remaining ways. Science, Science comes from experience. Yeah. yeah. Science kind of lives in that the the act of scientific observation comes down to observing things that we experience, things that we observe, right? It, it comes from our our sense experience whatever ways that we measure things, right? And the third way, the third way we come to know things? Testimony of others, testimony of others. Good, three ways of knowing things. Um, this is the branch of, philosophy, no, branch of philosophy known as epistemology, epistemology, which is the study of how we know. Um, the second question that was review um, was a statement that asks you um, the phrase, I'll believe in God when science can demonstrate his existence is an example of blank because dot dot dot. So it's a two part question. Um, let's f- fill in the blank. What's, I, and there's actually two correct answers you could have technically. What's one of them? It is a form of reductionism. It is, a, it is a form of reductionism. How many of you guys had that answer? About half. Good. A little bit more than half. Why, those of you who wrote reductionism, what was your because after that? Why is that an example of reductionism? Simplifies complex idea. Down to just one. So in other words, it's saying, um, I will only take, I will only validate information that comes from my experience. That's a form of reductionism. Right, because you're taking all of the complex ways we know things, and you really just kind of narrow it down to one. There's another word that you could have for that blank, because it, it's it's kind of it's both of these words. What's the other one you could have? Scientism. 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 And those of you that wrote scientism, what was your because for that one? Because they. Yeah, they're putting science up on that pedestal, right? Um, the reason we looked at that, that is probably the, uh, it's part of the worldview of modern atheism. And just to be aware, aware that if, if you're dialoguing with someone that's struggling with atheism, it often comes down to a hyper-emphasis on only one kind of knowing, a hyperemphasis on the scientific form of knowing. So one strategy in your dialogue is, well, let's talk about all the other ways that we know things. It's not just the scientific that we use in our day-to-day basis. Heck, for that matter, I have to rely on a lot of testimony of others. There's a lot that I can't verify scientifically. And that's, that comes down to trust. That's the testimony of others. Um, to say nothing of logic, and we'll, we'll talk more about that um, in the sessions that come. Um, the, again, the, the main topic of this course is why would anyone believe in God? And the, in all of our uh, talk as a church of, of being able to evangelize, which fundamentally comes down to just relationship and, and knowing people, it also takes a healthy dose of knowing a little bit of, of how to spar with someone intellectually. And, and this stuff takes practice. This stuff does not come easily, necessarily. The vocab is not part of our normal, everyday conversation. However, if, if we want to be um, best fit instruments in the hand of God and the Holy Spirit, knowing a little bit about these things is totally worth our time and our practice. And that's what we're, that's what we're after in these, in these sessions. Let's get started in prayer, and we'll, we'll dive into today's lesson. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, in whom we live, move, and have our being, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of who you are and for the gift of who you have made us to be, human beings fully alive. We ask that you be with us tonight, um, anoint this time and our fellowship and our learning, and we ask you to be, especially with those um, friends of ours that may not believe in God, and if, and if we find ourselves in this room having those struggles, um, we ask you to be with us in a special way. And we entrust this to Our Lady as we pray. Hail Mary, full Lord of grace, the Lord, Lord is with thee. The blessed art thou amongst women. women, and blessed is the fruit Spirit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary and Mother of God, and pray for us sinners, now and now at the and hour of our death. death. Amen. Mary, Queen of Peace. Pray for in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... If you look on uh, session two, the first page, right underneath that review, we've got our objectives for tonight. I'd like to do two things. One, we will be able to distinguish what the Christian means by the word God and what he doesn't mean. Uh, What do do we mean by God and what do we not mean? And secondly, we're going to use that to be able to answer some common objections about God's existence. We're not getting to the proofs of God's existence yet. We're still playing some defense tonight um, in some general, general ways. fair fair warning, this particular session, I borrow heavily, you got to give credit where credit is due from Bishop Robert Barron. Um, The things that he says on this topic, I find to be incredibly helpful. And I've I've read a fair amount on apologetics and and on God's existence. And I think he's on to something about making this distinction, that when we talk about God, if we could just get a foot in the door about what we mean by God and what we don't mean by God, it's very handy to nix out a lot of objections that get tossed out. So if you're familiar with him, you're going to hear some things that, that you've probably heard before. If you haven't heard and if what we, he, if what we say tonight go, sounds strange and you want to read more or hear more, Bishop Robert Barron, he has a series called The Mystery of God that's excellent. It's excellent. Um, that said, here's some vocab terms, because these terms um, are, are, are ones that we need to have some good distinctions for. Agnosticism and atheism, what's the difference? Agnosticism and atheism. Ag- an, ag- an agnostic is the philosophical perspective that says it is unlikely that there is a God. And the question uh, they question the certainty of God's existence. So they're kind of uns- uncertain, unsure, ambivalent. I don't know if there's a God, and I'm not going to say either way. An atheist, on the other hand, says outright, there is no God. So sometimes those words get tossed around. If someone identifies as an, as an agnostic, it's someone who's at least unsure about the situation. Maybe they're, they're trying to be a little bit more um, respectful of the position and that they don't have all the information. An atheist is going to be someone who has a little bit more confidence and says, I don't think there is any. On the other hand, theism, or a th- theism is the belief that there is a God, and theism is the belief in any god. So, under the umbrella of theism, that would include Christianity, it would also include Judaism, it would also include all kinds of pagan religions, technically, because those are all versions of God. And right now, we're just talking about, is it reasonable to believe in any god? per se, just, just as, as a blanket statement. And in that world, of all the different varieties of people that say there is some kind of God, the Christians and, and, Jew, and Jews and Muslims mean a specific thing. So I got two little boxes. I want to make um, some quick notes about what God is not. And these are going to sound strange, and then I'm going to say what God is, and these are probably going to sound even stranger. Okay. So here's the first thing God is not. God is not the biggest thing around. God is not the biggest thing around. Here's another one He's not one being among many beings. He's not one being among many third thing, he's not. He's not a thing in the universe. He's not a thing in the universe. On the other hand, what God is, um, God is being itself. This is on the other side, the other box. He is being itself. He is being. God is being is kind of a simpler way of saying that. Another way of saying that is he is the subsistent act of to be. I told you it was weird. He is the subsistent act of to be. And the second thing, that, and the third thing that he is is... Um, non-competitive. God is non-competitive. These are not things that you were probably taught in CCD. <laughs> competitive, competitive. He is non-competitive being. Not where we start our kindergartners with. Um, this is not the first thing you say to a kid who to someone who maybe doesn't know anything about God even. Um, when our children when we were educated about this this, admittedly, is pretty aggressive philosophical language to talk about God. Um, but we need to get our heads around this. And I, and I think, um, I'm going to make a case for why it's important for us to know these, these phrases, even if they're not in our everyday vocabulary. And as with any new vocabulary, the more you hear it, the more you read it and see it, the more familiar you're going to be, the more comfortable you and I are going to be about discussing these terms. So if this is strange and you're like, what does this have to do, just bear with me for a second, okay? So um, let's start with the one that he's not first. God is not the biggest thing around. This is already um, confusing to a lot of us, I think, because we tend to see the world in these kind of categories, right? Ants are small things. Dogs are a little bit bigger. Elephants are way bigger. Then there's Mount Everest, that's even bigger. And then there's the solar system, that makes the elephant look like an ant. And then if you're really good at science and physics, there's the universe, which makes our solar system look like a grain of sand, right? There's something like that. And God must be bigger than that. Wrong, wrong. Um, All of those things, the ant, the dog, the mountain, and the universe, are all what we would call in philosophy, beings. They all share in being. And some of them have more being than the other. That's why we say that the ant is tiny and the dog is actually bigger than the other. He has more being. And the mountain has more being than the dog. It's tempting to say, well, since God made everything, then he must also be a being. He must be the biggest thing around. Wrong. Because God doesn't have being. He is being itself. He is being. He's the ground of all being. This sounds strange, admittedly. But I would argue there's actually a biblical reference that most of us are familiar with that is already pushing the human mind to think in this. When Moses sees God in the burning bush and he says to Moses, you're going to go set my people free, and Moses says, that's great. Who should I tell them sent me? He says, you tell them this. You tell them I am who am. I am who am. That word, I remember, and I bet you do too, the first time you heard the story of of Exodus and you came across that passage, probably even as a young person, if you were literate on any level, you probably read that and you did kind of a double take. He's what? He's I am? What kind of name is that? Well, if you think about it grammatically for a moment... I am is a conjugation of a verb. It's the verb to be. It's the verb to be, right? I am, you are, he or she is, we are, they are, you all are. It's all the verb to be. So when God reveals himself to Moses, he has this really weird off-putting name. He says, I don't have a name, I'm, I am. I am, am. I am being itself. And all of a sudden, Moses takes a step back and starts scratching his head and is like, wow, that's really interesting. You know, another way of saying this from the biblical perspective, if, you know, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis and how God created things, that author in Genesis goes to great lengths to tell you, that God and the universe are not the same thing. Why? Because God speaks time and space into existence. God speaks the sun, the moon, and the stars into existence. He speaks the sea and the sky into existence. He speaks the animals and the birds and the fish and humanity into existence. But he is not in the universe. He's not the universe. He's different than the universe. That's worth thinking on for one moment. God, a simple equation. God does not equal, this is the Christian version, huh? The, the Christian version says God does not equal the universe. God is not the same thing as the universe. God is outside the universe. That's the whole lesson of Genesis. I created the sun, the moon, the stars. I created the animals. I'm not inside the universe. Now, think about this. Go back to our little review question. That review question says, I'm not going to believe in God until science can demonstrate his existence. Take a moment. Think about what I just told you about God and think what's wrong with the person who says, I'm not going to believe in God until science demonstrates it. When you think you know the answer, raise your hand. See one hand? two, three, four. Five, six, seven, that's almost one per table. Turn to someone who raised their hand, ask them what they're thinking. See if they can, see if they figured it out. All right, I hear a lot of good conversation, and I hear a lot of people got to the, the end of it. Someone tell me. Given what I just taught you about God, what was actually, what was probably kind of already in your mind about God, if you heard the story of Genesis, what's wrong with the statement, "I'm only going to believe in God when science proves him"? What's wrong with that statement? Yeah. How can science prove its own author? How can science prove its own author? What? Explain what you mean by that. Well, God is the reason. I wasn't here last week, but I must have seen it on here, something about uh, how can you prove there's an author if the author's not in the story? Ah, yeah. There's, that's a great analogy. How could you prove an author, an author's existence, only by the characters in the story? Does that disprove the author's existence? That's a great answer. Give me something else. How else would you guys phrase? What's wrong with that statement? I'm only going to believe in God when science proves him. Yeah. Well, in the if it's not the Bingo. There it is. There's the simplest, simplest iteration of it, I think. Science, by definition, only studies things in the universe. That's the definition of any scientist will tell you that. Any scientist in any branch of science will tell you look, we study that which is physically apparent to us in some way shape or form but if God by definition is that which is not in the universe you're never gonna find him there and looking for him there is gonna be a very big waste of time in a sense right let's let's put that into words right science only studies that which is in the universe. And God, by definition, is not in the universe. Uh, You'll recall last week if you like to put that down in one sentence there's there's your sentence right science only studies that which is in the universe and God by definition is not in the universe. Yeah, Festus. It's just back to the same problem. Your definition of God and my definition of God are completely different. Mm. You're back to the same question we started with. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I find this is a handy tip to just have in your back pocket when you find someone that doesn't believe in God, one of the most productive questions you can ask is, ah, oh, tell me about the God you don't believe in. That is a very, that, that's kind of a smart aleck, in a sense it's smart aleck, but in other sense it's very important. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. A couple of things are, are good about that response. One, you're asking for a dialogue. You're asking to be taught which is a great place, humble place to be. If only, if only people encountered more Christians with that humility. Tell me about your position. But secondarily, you also know something. Most likely, most likely their definition of God and what we mean by God are not the same thing. And so you know what I would say to them more times than not, you know what, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> I I totally agree with you. The God I believe in, though, is different in kind. What do you mean different in kind? Well, now you're in a dialogue. Now they asked the right question. What do you mean? What kind of God do you mean? Well, let me tell you, right? And here's where the thing can start unfolding. I mean the God who is not the biggest thing around, who's not one being among many, and he's not a thing in the universe. Science, by definition, couldn't find him. There's no way it could. An honest scientist couldn't, which is why, it's why when you see certain atheists that champion atheism, like the the atheistic evangelists that say, well, science clearly proves that all of religion is false, you can just say, oh, that is so, um, that's so, I have a lot of sympathy for you because it seems like you're very misinformed by what we're talking about. And it gives, us, it gives us a place to start the conversation from. Let's take this a step further. If God is not one being around, if he is the act of being itself, um, let's say this about him. God is is really weird. This is a, this is a strange thought. The idea that there is Being itself, being itself, that's that's so off it's so hard to get my mind around what does that even mean? It sounds like I'm mishearing you, Sebastian. What is what what do you what do you mean by that? This is what I think is so important about this. God is not easily comprehended by the human mind. If you think, Bishop Barron says this. If you think you've, you, you've understood it, you've got it wrong. <laughs> That's actually a quote from St. Augustine. Si, si comprehendis non est Deus. If you understand, it's not God. That's the one thing you can take to the bank. If you understand it, it's not God. It's like, it's, think about how brilliant this was. I am who am. It's like a name, but the second you say it, You say, who? (laughs) You're what? And God's like, exactly. (laughs) That's where I want you, Sebastian, right there. You know that I exist, and you know I'm beyond you. You see, we're putting really philosophical fancy terms to this, but it's all in Exodus. It's all in Genesis. It's right there for the person that wants to, to see it. Let's make another step forward, kind of a funny one. Um, The ant, let's go back to our ant and our elephant and our dog, right? These creatures, they take up space. They can't be, they can't occupy the same space at the same time in the same way. In other words, if Mr. Ant is right here, and Mr. Elephant is right here. And Mr. Elephant wants to come over here. He's going to have to move Mr. Ant out of the way. They're in competition for the same space. They can't both be in the same space. You've got to kind of elbow them out of the room. And that's what it means to be a physical creature, to have two beings. You're going to be naturally kind of just, um, jostling for position. This happens all the time at my kitchen table. <laughs> I have, we, we are six people in my family at the moment that are sitting around the table. No, six with the, the, the infant, right? Um, so five, we have four wooden chairs and we have one soft chair. And you would think that soft chair was the throne. And my kids fight like cats and dogs over who can occupy that chair because they can't occupy the same chair at the same time in the same way, right? They're beings that are competitive, and they know, and they've got this system now. Who is it? I've got to think about it. Gabriel always gets it at dinner. Bella always gets it, gets it for lunch, and Santi always gets it for breakfast. And if Santi comes down and Bella's in the chair, there's the alarm clock for the whole house. Like, everyone's waking up, right? Why is that? That, that silly example is material beings... Fighting over one space because they're in competition for one thing. There's scarce natural resources, they're duking it out. Ah, but God, God is not a being. So God is not in competition. That's weird. What do I mean by that? Well, let's go back to Exodus for a moment. When God reveals this name to Moses, how does he show up? The burning bush. A burning bush. Yeah. Consumed. yeah, a bush that's a bush that's on fire but isn't consumed. It's still a bush and it's on fire. It's still what it is and somehow God is there. Well, that is actually a wonderful picture of what happens when God comes close to creation. God can be in the world and he doesn't have to push anything out of the way. When he comes close to that bush, it lights up. It becomes luminous. It's on fire. God is there and it's still a bush. And Moses knows he's into something deep. He knows whatever it is that's in front of him is, I, I got to come see this. And then immediately after it's take your sandals off. You don't know where you're at, Moses. You're out of your element. And he says, I don't don't know. What is that a picture of? That is a picture of non-competitive being. That's God being in the human world, so to speak, and the world, he doesn't have to push the world out of the way. That's non-competitive being. Why is that important? Because a lot of atheistic objections to God go something like this God, if you say yes to God, it's like living in a dictatorship where you have to submit yourself to God and you become a slave. This is one of, one of the tools of modern atheism is to say religion religion is a, it's a kind of slavery to a God where you have to submit your will to his and he takes away your freedom. As if my will and God's will were competitive. Yeah. So much presentations in in church and and teaching and education and prayers all say those words that, you know, I I mean, I'm not challenging it, but just the the whole, you know, submit to the will. Yeah. Uh, You know, submitting, you know, that's just so a part of everyday presentation relationship. Right. And I think that's very astute of you to pick up on that. And I think it means we have to clarify, what do we mean when we say, not my will, but your will be done? Because by the way, he taught us to pray that way, right? It's not wrong when we say that, but what do we mean? We mean this, that when the human being submits to God, then we become the most free When we say yes to God, I become fully alive. There's a famous quote from St. Irenaeus that says, The glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. When the human being says yes to God, we become not less free, we become more free kind of like the burning bush. When God comes close to the burning bush, he doesn't obliterate the bush. He makes it more than what it was before. Does that make sense? So the problem, I think, actually is coming where some atheists grow up as Christians and they misunderstand some of the language that we use when it comes to God. And they use it to characterize this false idea of God. Let's let's take this idea just one. And by the way, everything I'm saying to you, I've included in your packet. Take a look at um, page two. Take a look at page two. You'll see in italics all these things that I've just been sharing. Are, they're all right here because I, I knew better than just to lecture this stuff and then send you on your way. We're, you're going to have to read this a couple times probably and get this in, in your mind. But if you look um, everything we've just said at the bottom of page two, right? But does but God does not possess being. He is being. What this means is that God does not have to compete with any of these things in the universe. God is the non-competitive sheer active to be. The ant and the dog and the elephant are beings that take up a certain amount of space, and they can't occupy the same space at the same time. They're competing for the same space in this way, but not God. God can be present to all things and not take up any space. If you flip this over and now look at the bottom of, let's see, one, two, three, the third paragraph from the bottom on page three, take a look at page three, the one that says, going one step further. Going one step further, we see this in startling clarity. In the incarnation, when God enters into humanity, God does not obliterate it. Rather, Jesus is God. He's fully God and fully man. God and man are not opposed, but united in the divine person of God. You see why the Christian version of God is so distinctive? He's so distinctive. It's a God that can come close to us and we become more alive than what we were before. And someone might say, but that's just Jesus. What about us? Look at the next one. The same could be said in a different way of the Virgin Mary. When she says yes to God and lets him into her life, she does not stop being human. Instead, she becomes the most human and the most powerful and the freest creature that ever lived. This is why one of the favorite titles for Mary in the ancient church was the burning bush. Think about that for a moment. When, when the ancient church fathers, when they looked at Mary, they saw, what did they see? They, say, they saw the Holy Spirit enter into a woman, and that woman became luminous. She became on fire with God's life. And the church fathers read the story of Exodus, and they saw the burning bush, that's a prefigurement of Mary. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And, think, and if you reflect on that for just any, any moment, it becomes, it becomes moving because when God showed up in the burning bush, it was to bring the people out of slavery. Well, when God comes into Mary, it's to bring us out of slavery to our sin. And atheists, look at what the atheist says. No, 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 no. God is the slave master. God is the one holding you down. Saying yes to God is like, as one atheist said, living in a permanent North Korea. That's Mr. Hitchens for you. Um, Think about how crazy that is, like how backwards all of it is. It's like saying, where have we heard this kind of language before? He's not a father, he's a master. He's a slave driver. And he doesn't want you to be like him. Where, wait. That's in the garden. That's the serpent in the garden. That's the voice of Satan. And you hear it in a different accent. Well, it's the same accent, just different words in modern atheism. I'm not calling our, athe- our, our atheist brothers and sisters Satan. I'm not calling them that. I'm saying that the logic that's in that echoes that of the serpent. And that's, that's important. But see, the issue here is that Christianity, when we present our case, and Bishop Barron is so insightful in this, he's saying, look, the, one of the reasons that atheism has proliferated the way it has is because we have not done a good job of really articulating what we mean by God. We mean being itself, the subsistent active to be that is the ground of being for everything else, who when he comes close, he makes you more free. And you can't find him in a test tube. Well, by definition now, a lot of things get swept off the table. God is not a slave master. He is not in competition with me. And I'm sure as heck not going to find him in a test tube. Now can we start talking about God? That's the God I believe in see what I mean? Now we can start having a dialogue about God. Yeah? Well, about the word free, I yeah. Um, so as I think about the will of God and if I'm a non-Christian, I think as a Christian, you have all these rules and you have the Ten Commandments. And so if I'm a, a faithful Christian, I am, I am going to be, uh, I'm not free to not follow the rules, right? I I want to follow the rules, right? So then um, I guess that's where I'm hung up on the word, the freedom. The freedom. Think of it this way. God's rules, God's laws are like gravity. When God speaks things, he's describing not just a random rule that's being imposed. He's describing the way things are. If I wanted to fight against and rebel against the law of gravity, if I climbed up to a building and said, gravity, I defy thee, and I just took a running leap, who loses? Me, <laughs> every time, right? God's laws are like that. When he's, and this is the whole issue, and I think a lot of it comes from these misunderstandings of how God gives rules. When God gives me rules, he's actually giving me a description of how I function the instruction, the instruction manual yeah yeah I think we're such a con- we're such controlled beings. we want to be in control and we live out of control we're super uncomfortable mm-hmm. because if our finances are in control and our health is in control and everything in control that yeah. life is good yep so this idea that if we're totally in control we might see our world to be this big and this tall and it's perfect Yes. But if we let God be in control, yes, our world can be this big and this big, but we don't even know how big that could be because we can't imagine. Yes. That because. Right. I mean, that's how I see it. And Deb, I think this is—I like that you brought that up because in my experience, there's layers to people's atheism. There's often, think of it like layers of sediment on the earth. The first thing that you encounter are the objections to God. The intellectual objections to God. Maybe it's science, maybe it's whatever it is, but when you dig deeper into the human heart, you almost always find different reasons. It's not usually intellectual reasons. Almost always, it's a matter of the heart, and there's usually some kind of fear at the root of it. A, a fear of not being in control, as you describe, or a fear of um, of not being, of, of having to rely on someone else. And the questions that happen at that level, that's actually kind of, if, if, we were, if you thought of apologetics like mining for gold, when you strike those kinds of questions, you've hit, you've hit the gold mine because you're actually at the, the real cause of the atheism. But these things that we discussed like tonight, this kind of technical philosophical stuff, it's more like the stuff, it's like a pickaxe that just gets the rocks out of, out of the way so you can actually start digging. That's, that's the real usefulness of, of knowing some of these things which I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's a, that's a major one. Thanks for listening to The Movement. To find out more about Holy Family School of Faith's mission to lead others to Jesus through friendship, good conversation, and the rosary, head over to our website at schooloffaith.com.